Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by James Bond. Wait, does James Bond really need a tuxedo? I mean, he's a spy that drinks on the job while saving the world from disfigured villains and hitting on every woman he meets. Seems like more of a tank top situation. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. Uh, today's, uh, I'm really happy with that one, by the way. That was a good one. That was a good one. Well done. <laughs> today's show is brought to you by Knuckles' Sandwiches. Come get a mouthful of Knuckles Sandwiches and try our award-winning marmalade at Knuckles' Sandwiches. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers, writers, producers, some more reluctantly than others. And we like to analyze films, bringing all of that pseudo knowledge into the fold. Uh, we have yet to make an entire movie, but uh, we'll see if we can remedy that in the next six months. Yeah, I have so much to talk about today. I think we should just dive right in. Absolutely. Today we are covering Top Gun, the original 1986, I believe. Uh, so if you haven't seen that film, please pause it and uh, and go watch it. It's on Netflix streaming at least till the end of May. So if not, uh, if it's not streaming anymore, just buy it and watch it. <laughs> For sure. We'll look at a few things. Uh, we'll touch on some of the cinematography. Uh, we'll look at the editing and music, looking at how they edit the aerial combat and also how uh, they connect sequences through music. And we'll look at some of the story and writing, a classic 80s plot line, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. As students at the United States Navy's Elite Fighter Weapons School compete to be the best in the class, one daring young pilot learns a few things from a civilian instructor that are not taught in the classroom. Directed by Tony Scott, written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., cinematography by Jeffrey L. Kimball, starring Tom Cruise as Maverick, Kelly McGillis as Charlie, Anthony Edwards as Goose, Val Kilmer as Iceman, uh, Tom Skerritt as Viper, Michael Ironside as Jester, Meg Ryan as Carol, and Tim Robbins as Merlin. Maverick, you just did an incredibly brave thing. What you should have done was land your plane. You don't own that plane, the taxpayers do. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. You've been busted, you lost your qualifications as section leader three times put in hack twice by me with a history of high-speed passes over five air-controlled towers and one admiral's daughter. Penny Benjamin. And you, asshole, you're lucky to be here. Thank you, sir. And let's not bullshit, Maverick. Your family name ain't the best in the Navy. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy. Now, what is it with you? Just want to serve my country. Be the best fighter pilot in the Navy, sir. Don't screw around with me, Maverick. You're a hell of an instinctive pilot. Maybe too good. I'd like to bust your butt, but I can't. I got another problem here. I gotta send somebody from this squadron to Miramar. I gotta do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. For five weeks, you're gonna fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You were number two, Cougar was number one. Cougar lost it, turned in his wings. You guys are number one. All right, Todd. So this is 1986 calling. Yeah. <laughs> are, yeah, yeah. Are, yeah. You, are you picking up the phone? <laughs> There's a lot of 
Okay. I saw a little, I'll start it with this. Saw a clip uh, from Quentin Tarantino. Talk about the real meaning. You've seen this. And so it's hard to not, it's hard to not watch it like that. I don't think he's right. I don't think it's a, it's. Yeah. So basically it's like, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's just a clip. I don't even know what it's from. It looks like it's from a movie. Yeah, I, from a movie? I wanna, yeah, I want to say that might be from Four Rooms. Well, he talks about like the real meaning of Top Gun, which is about, you know, Maverick fighting to be either or his, his fight to either be gay or not be gay. And and there's so many references to butts and like hugs and like, you know, real male camaraderie, you know, that kind of thing. But I think I, I don't think that's the case here. I think it's just it's just. It's 1986. He was trying to get the director was trying to get uh, Tony Scott was trying to get across this camaraderie, this this like a uh, band of brothers, family kind of camaraderie like feel. And, you know, in t- 2022, it seems, uh, you know, a little homosexual, yeah. which is it's, you know, whatever it's it just it just is. So that aside, though, that aside, there's uh, to me, there's a lot of great things about this film. I mean, the cinematography is incredible, especially from 1986. I mean, you, you, I was watching this and I was thinking, this is interstellar. There's a lot of stuff, you know, where they mm. put the camera on the out, on the wing, yeah. right on the on the side of the the outside of the of the plane as it's turning or as it's going through a cloud or uh. or whatever. They use a lot of directional, like plane directional things to give you to orient you in. In a dogfight. So, mm-hmm. you know, if if Maverick says, I'm banking right, we see the plane go out of frame to the right. You know, if, it, if it's if he says, I'm go, he's going vertical, I'm going vertical, too. We see the plane go straight up. Right now, there's there's not really a whole lot to orient you because, you you know, unless the except for the direction of the plane in the frame. Right. So, I mean, that plane, honestly, that plane could have been going straight and flat, but you turn the camera and it looks like it's going up, you know. But the the editing is the dogfight editing is so brilliant in this movie. Like, I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it, because this is just like from, you know, yeah. my... no, I mean, the that's it's hard to walk away without thinking that. Right. Like the yeah. the aerial editing is incredible because, yeah, like like you just said, you know, there's there's a lot of expositional dialogue while they're in the cockpit. Right. I'm banking left. And then, you know, we cut to a shot of him going to the left i mean individually if you were to just look at all capturing all this it's probably extremely unexciting filmmaking right because you're just kind of out in the field and you're like okay uh do we need a shot of this from the ground or do we do we need a shot of this from the air from above and so deciding that will will probably change from a cinematographer uh point of view what your background is do you want sky in the background or do you want land in the background um or do you want the horizon right those are three completely different ways of, of filming this, um, which requires a lot of coordination and resetting um, in order to get, you know, the right background. Um, but it's all set up with the dialogue. I'm banking left and narrating their moves works because they're communicating with each other. And so it doesn't feel like they're trying to orient you, the viewer. It feels like they're communicating amongst themselves, um, which is important, right? That's an important part of teamwork. The stuff that you were just talking about that Tony Scott was really trying to drive home, right? Um, is the camaraderie and the way uh, they handle each other 
Um, and it don't it doesn't matter what you say, it's all gonna come off as homoerotic. But, you said it, not me. But it also all that stuff also helps to orient the audience and connect each jet with who's inside because that's the other thing is if you're not telegraphing through dialogue and through these shots in the cockpit then it's just all going to be like who's in that jet the a jet looks the same no matter what uh who's in it from you know a thousand feet away and so using that and intercutting the cockpit dialogue with uh random shots of jets making maneuvers because again we don't necessarily know if that's Tom Cruise's jet or if it's Iceman's jet. There's really nothing telling us uh, these things apart because they don't the classic World War II style of we're going to paint something, you know, meaningful to the crew on the side of this jet uh, doesn't exist in this universe uh, to the degree that you need to be able to see it from, you know, a great distance. Um, and then from there, they have so many other other tools to help continually orient the viewer about what's happening. It would be insanely easy to get lost uh, without all these things tying us together because at the end of the day, you're just a dogfight probably isn't that exciting from the ground because it takes so long to get into position and maneuver. But through all these inner cuts, uh, you're able to just kind of jump to, Oh, he, he banked left and now he's looped around. He's already back behind again. Right. And you can do that through three or four very fast lightning fast cuts. So you, you use those things, right. The, uh, the dialogue from the cockpit, uh, shots of jets making maneuvers. And now you can also jump into their targeting HUD, right. With the, the arrows and the, the sound, right. And now you're visually communicating, you know, who's in danger, um, because they're also still communicating. Oh, he's, he's, he's locking on or whatever. Right. You're constantly hearing people tell you what you're seeing and who's who's in trouble, who's in not. Um, and then, of course, you have the radar, right? Because you can cut. Then you can cut to the control tower, right, to perfectly communicate what's happening in the air. And the control tower can show you close-ups of the radar, and that's how you get one bogey becomes four, becomes five, um, and now you can ramp up the tension. And it's just all incredibly well thought out, maybe from the script standpoint but certainly executed from the directing and the editing standpoint Um, because i can't imagine in 1985 whenever you're editing this and it's probably all real to real and you're making some of these cuts that are like 12 to 20 frames long like that the precision to find what you want had to to cut it right yeah you know exhausting there is probably just oodles of tape and just jets i mean it probably looked like a madhouse in that editing room but it was just absolutely immaculate to today like like you said you're watching this in 2022 and saying this is insane this is incredible um and it probably even goes further back i mean yeah you you referenced you know interstellar and using the you know how top gun is using the the mounting on the wing but uh according to the aviator i haven't watched this old movie but according to the aviator like was it hell's angels you know was using Mm -hmm. some of that same ideology of we're going to mount cameras to planes and they had to work through you know how to make it feel like a dogfight even though you're out in a pretty blue sky whatever that was a whole plot line and different film but like i can only imagine what you're thinking in 1984 85 as you're developing this project how are we going to capture this? And so you probably go to NASA, you probably go to the Air Force, and you get a lot of help in saying, how do y'all like analyze your 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 pilots? You know, what are y'all doing? And how can we make it look 10 times cooler? <laughs> but yeah. 
it all culminated, you know, to your point, like uh, in the editing bay because they really had to make it sing. And my God, just immaculate. Yeah, uh, un- unreal, unreal. And, and I mean, I guess it all culminates in the in the um, in the real dogfight at the end, you know. Mm. But but I think that the all the stuff of all the training stuff is really like that's the most amazing to me because the the ending dogfight, I guess, you know. Like I thought they did a really job of 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 heightening the tension of like the MIG is shooting and misses, but then the MIG shoots and hits and then we're shooting at them and we hit, but then we miss twice and then we hit again. Like, oh, you know, you know, so there's a lot of explaining and a lot of things that like, you know, that happen and then don't happen and then happen. You know, it's kind of it's not like a it's the normal formula. It's not like uh Oh, we're going to hit every single time. Yeah. Because then you know, as soon as a as a missile goes off, it's going to hit or it's going to miss. Like, no, it's it's you you just don't know. Um, and so there were a couple of times where we miss, and I thought we were going to hit, and I thought that that was really good. But like all of the the training dog fights were really the most interesting to me, especially the one with Jester when he goes below the hard deck. I love that because for so many reasons. One, it just gives it gives you as as someone who, you know, might, even if you were in the military, you might not be in the Navy, you might not be a pilot, like understanding that there are, there are rules and, and what, you know, like the idea of a hard deck, right? That that's the lingo that we don't know. Yeah. Did not know that. Okay, cool. So you don't engage below 10,000 feet. Okay. And he did it, the level at which he got in trouble. And yet he's still super respected because he flew really well and understanding that what he did was, you know, it also gives you the understanding in the story of what he did was actually amazing, right? Even if he got in trouble, it was amazing. So it establishes him even more as like this great pilot, which we already kind of know from the very beginning when he fl- does the inverted thing with the MIG, which is just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like so amazing. But that and then and then when he fights Viper, I thought it was really great. Like he doesn't always he doesn't win. That's such a great storyline like he doesn't become top gun uh, mm. Iceman does because of so many reasons i mean obviously goose passing away which you've got to have a loss and how do you have a loss you know when you're only going to have one fight at the very end right but we want he needs to go through this war in his head before that so that the fight at the end is this his redeeming moment so he has to have this loss early on so or earlier so how do you make that happen well i, I an accident you make it happen with an accident, which happens all the time. What they do is dangerous, and it establishes what they do as dangerous because people could die even in training situations. Um, and obviously, you know, goose dying is like one of the most timeless deaths in all yeah. of cinema, really. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like, yeah. I mean, you know, even today, you know, we talk about goose dying to people and they're like, oh, goose. <laughs> you know, which is amazing because it's amazing, like, uh, storyline. He's the comic relief. Yeah. And, you know, as, as stories go, the comic relief never lasts, right? But how does the comic relief go out? That's an important thing as well. Like, and in this, this scenario, I just thought it was so impactful because it was a complete accident. It wasn't like nobody wanted it to happen, you know, and it happened from Iceman. And so, uh, which I thought was a great twist there because hmm. um, it could have happened just, you know, maybe in some other way that didn't have anything to do with Iceman, right? But then later on, when Iceman says that he 
basically like goes up to Maverick and, and, and says, I'm sorry about Goose. Everybody loved him, whatever. It, it feels real. It feels like, you know, he doesn't blame himself. He knows that it's, it was an accident that that kind those kinds of things happen. And I think that you can tell that, especially, I love the 10, 15 second, um, scene of him being exonerated in the, in mm. the, um, in the, uh, the hearing, the court, the yeah. hearing. Thank you. We needed that. We needed it to be told to us and to him, this was not your fault. You know, without that, then we can just assume that it's okay for him to blame himself. Yeah. If he were a better pilot, he would have been able to recover from that spin. Or, you know, it or it was definitely Iceman's fault, so he should definitely apologize, you know, or feel bad about it. But no, Iceman doesn't need to feel bad about it, and neither does Maverick. And that... 20 seconds was so vital to give to us as a, as a viewer. And, and so that, you know, when, when uh, Maverick goes to Viper and says, and says, I, you know, I don't know what to do. Blah, blah, and Viper doesn't tell him what to do. He just has to get over it himself. He has to understand uh, this as a pilot mistakes happen. Got to learn from it. Keep going as Viper says. So yeah, I just, I don't know. I thought the story was fantastic. I could have completely done without the romantic interest. It was mm it was a total waste of time for me total waste of time i'm not interested in it i'm not i'm not like it has no bearing on the story at all for me so i was completely taken out all of those moments i mean i, I think probably in the 90s when i eventually watched this movie because i definitely didn't see it when i was six years old you know when it 86 but probably in the 90s i was probably like oh yeah you know like, <laughs> love scene awesome but now I'm just totally, I don't know, not in it. I don't know. It just didn't do anything for me. That's So that, that would be the point. one criticism that I would have. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been in there. You know, they needed some kind of establish him having a life outside of a plane, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's an actual human being. That's a really fair point, though. Like, yeah, it does flesh out his character and it reasserts his pilot tendencies right he's cocky he's arrogant and he's he's in for the fight his approach to her is very pilot um, and his relentlessness is very pilot i've never i don't think i've met any pilots i've just listened to interviews and the the theme does sound does seem to be uh, uh the the arrogance and the the level of cockiness is there among pilots like that's the group of people that if you're going to walk into a room uh, you got to just check your mind at the door because they're probably going to try to, you know, alpha dog you or whatever, you know, stupid. And if thing. you're a pilot, please leave comments down yeah. below and let us know if we're right, right or wrong. But it was, just, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I listened to this podcast called, uh, I, I think I sent you one of the, the, the video the episodes. Uh, it's like mission interplanetary. I, I think yeah, it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, the woman on there is a pilot and she's a NASA astronaut and she goes, sometimes she'll talk about like attitude, the attitude of pilots. And she's like, Hey, <laughs> it is yeah. what it is. It and, is what it is. You got to be a certain way to do what you do. Yeah. Can you imagine being in charge of not just an expensive plane, but the, the attitude that takes with, I'm going to put my life and others lives in the, in my hands. Yeah. And it's going to be not just, okay, it's going to be amazing. Like y'all are going to be good. Like you do have to have a level of confidence that supersedes the average Joe. A hundred percent. And I do not, I don't know if I could be a pilot on that level 
I, I'm sure I would have to go undergo some some changes in my my mindset. Uh, but yeah, it makes sense. And her story, the the Charlie's subplot, if you want to call it that, is yeah, it helps flesh that out. But I I think you're making an interesting point that it isn't this. It may not be mission critical to this story. Like it's a fun thing. Um, the one thing it does also give us though is you you talked about the uh, or his losing being important to set up his his final win and when it matters most right and I think she also adds to that idea of uh, yeah. victory and loss right because you can't have everything be sweet you can't have everything be bitter sweet must be followed by bitter and bitter must be followed by sweet in order to balance things out and in order to create uh an experience right you can't just beat on a character for you know an hour and 25 minutes and then give them five minutes of a victory like that's i mean you can and there's probably movies that do that but you got to really be delicate in and how you go about it or else uh you just feel a little too beat up as an audience member and so with her though she gives him a really big victory, right? Because he's constantly getting shot down and then they play kind of this chase, you know, cat and mouse game of love. Uh, but he finally gets her, right? He finally gets a win, gets uh, Charlie and things are going well. And that's a really big victory for him in this story. But it's followed very soon by Goose dying, right? That's He goes from one peak to a valley. And which, by the way, Goose Knight, you, you're right. This is one of the most memorable deaths uh, in cinema, in my like generation, at least. Um, cinema history, it's right up there with whatever, Mufasa. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I love how Goose dies. Maverick gets back, takes a shower, and Viper walks in. Hey, you got to let him go. Like, bro, his body's still like, bleeding he, in the next yeah, room. And he you're just over here died. Like, Can I have an God. hour? Can I yeah. grieve for like 15 minutes? <laughs> and he's like, hey, you got to let him go. Damn, man. You get no time. No time. No time. Move on. It's time to move on, Maverick. <laughs> You've grieved long enough. Dude, it's been like 13 minutes. <laughs> I just washed his blood off. <laughs> <laughs> Still under my nails. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that just that that cracked me up. I will say, watching this twice really helped me. Like I watched it that first time with that same exact lens that you were talking about, that homoerotic lens, and and also just the the lens of how much some of these things have been mocked and made fun of. Right, the volleyball sequence and you name it. Right, this whole movie is just so incredibly famous that. Uh, and iconic that it's easy to kind of uh, harpoon it and kind of see through all the machismo and how serious it takes itself. It takes itself incredibly serious, which whenever you kind of step back and see kind of the, the level of, you know, cheese that kind of sits on top, it becomes easy to kind of laugh at it. And so I had a hard time engaging with it my first watch, but then rewatching it, I, it was like, I got all the giggles out and I was able to actually really enjoy it. And, um, I was trying to take notes and I kept getting sucked in. Uh, and so it's still a really good movie. If you can remove, I think yourself and and maybe even your own ego and kind of let go of all those, those aspects of it and just kind of enjoy it for what it is. Uh, because it's, yeah. it's, it's still really fun and there's yeah, still I mean like like look I I can I can hug you mm -hmm. right if I haven't seen you in a while dude I'm gonna hug you you know I'll put my hand on your shoulder you know like there's nothing about it 
And I think in, in, especially in like 1986, there was no like assumption, you know, of, of, you know, we're going to, we're going to be, make this homoerotic. Like right. it was just, it was just, it was, like I said earlier, and it's a way to establish camaraderie visually rather than just, you know, I'm going to say I'm your brother and I'm going to stick by my wingman or I'm not, you know, it's like just another, another thing. It was a little much of like, you know, the tidy whities but that's an 80 thing, yeah. 80s thing, you know, and, you know, being in a, like just hanging out, standing around in a, in a locker, <laughs> like those kinds of things were, you know, but you can you can watch that through a lens of just this is just happening rather than this is a homoerotic thing. But I think you're making a really important point, which is in 1986, there was an innocence and a sincerity that was there that isn't there anymore. And that kind of sucks yeah. because we we hear a lot about the idea of toxic masculinity, right? Um, yeah. Where even if you don't subscribe to it, you know, if you think that that whole line of ideology and and. Uh, philosophizing is just complete and utter stupidity. But whenever you see men trying to connect and whatever, uh, like be physical with each other, and the takeaway is to make fun of it, all you're trying to do is reinforce uh, this kind of stoic, classical machismo as the norm instead of saying, you know, it's okay to do all those things and to not be made fun of for it. Yeah. That's a good lesson to walk away with too. Totally. There is no... we are not in an era anymore where these things could happen and people don't, you know, like assume something. Right. And Mm -hmm. you're just putting assumptions on situations or on people. Uh, But back then, I guess that was a good, uh, a a good thing that that didn't really exist as much where these things could happen. You know, like I could express love to another man in a way that doesn't, isn't, you know, assumed to be sexual. Right. Like it just kind of like, is now and so there's there's i was trying to watch it through the lens of like of that of of the innocence and um uh unassumptiveness if if that's a word unassumption Mm. of of a a a, you know how you're leaning sexually like it it was just it was just like something that was happening in the film that that was all because there wasn't any kind of other insinuation outside of those moments yeah you know, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of um, of instructors saying, I want somebody's butts. Like, what was the the, the tower guy? I want, some I want someone's butts. There was, he said it like seven times or something. And at that point, I said, oh, maybe Quentin's got a, got a point about this movie. But you could oh, easily man. spend like a day or two and going line by line and analyzing everything and walk away with just a full bulletin board full of uh like analysis yeah. on the homoerotic side of things and it would be hilarious like i would absolutely enjoy that but yeah i'm sure someone has let's yeah. scour the internet but uh, yeah but i i prefer i think to to look at it with the more kind of innocent sincere yeah. uh way that it was delivered and that's kind of nice agreed because most of this film is like straight exposition and whenever you start kind of divorcing yourself from all the 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 ideology of it, like you're just constantly learning bits and pieces here. And they're from a writing standpoint, like very unabashed with just telling you things straight out. Like, uh, and some of it's clever. I think you made a a good point about him being inverted really sets up his expertise and his level of skill, um, which is then reinforced whenever he meets this, uh, expert, you know, security or, uh, 
aeronautics engineer or whatever you know Advisor she is or whatever, yeah. yeah um because she can't believe it and he's like i'm doing things that you don't even understand right that really sets up his level of skill on a whole other level um and then most of the film is just straight up like i'm banking left that is exposition he's telling you what he's about to do yeah. <laughs> and then we see him do it like yeah. they're, but they're in school um and so hearing uh, a training session or it all just kind of flows in together and in a very naturalistic way. And so it doesn't sting nearly as much uh, hearing about their backgrounds or um, your dad was a, a, a troubled pilot or whatever, you know, kind of stuff that you, they set up a sketchy background for his dad. And, and it all kind of flows in together because the attitude of the film is one of training and education. Um, and so I was really impressed with uh, how much they got away with <laughs> for yeah. of, of expositing. Um, I thought that was, that was, you know, kind of nice uh i also appreciate that this is 1986 which was probably getting close to the peak of the classic loose cannon storyline yeah right <laughs> because you have whatever lethal weapon and god knows how many movies were all about the loose cannon cop or the loose cannon army guy um and here you know we have uh, the loose cannon pilot uh whole storyline which is that clip I played is all about how he's amazing, uh, but he's 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 writing checks his body can't cash, right? He's, yeah. uh -huh. It's just peak 80s storyline. And that whole idea, I think, also works very, very well in uniform situations. And I mean that in you know multiple ways, of course, uh, where the obedience and chain of command is paramount. And that, my friends was a triple entendre. I'll let you think it out. Um, and so you, you don't see a lot of loose cannon storylines in like the mafia, right? right <laughs> because yeah. everyone there is kind of a loose cannon to begin with, but having a loose cannon in school, right? Where everyone obedience and uh, paying attention, following the rules uh, are all what everyone else is doing. It's easy to create that contrast with a loose cannon storyline. Um, and we just don't see that as much anymore, of course, but part and parcel with that is the bald yelly captain right yeah. and they have this guy at the beginning and in the and 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 i think it's a really smart play because he is now super easy to remember he's got a very distinct visual look and he's just you know yelling and he's very authoritative and it's just a great casting and a great character development because at, at the same time you don't really see him for about 90 minutes you see him at in the you know the first five minutes, and then you see him in the last five minutes, um, and then you don't see him anywhere else. And so, casting and creating that kind of very strong vocal character uh, is a really smart way to to keep us uh, looped in on when and where uh, Maverick is, um, because Tom Skerritt has a very nice full head of hair, and so yeah, uh, you can't. He's not play as that ominous. Card. No, <laughs> they make him like a dad figure, which yeah. is, is really great. You know, like teach him a lesson, get him up, get him back up and flying right away. There's a great dad thing at the end where where when uh, Maverick goes to see him, and he, he like I said earlier, doesn't tell him what to do, doesn't tell him to leave, doesn't tell him to stay. He basically just says, "Okay, you have a decision to make." You know, um, it's such a dad move. It's such a really great. Because then when he makes the decision to stay, it's his own. He wasn't influenced. It's it's his own decision to to continue. Yeah, that that's a good point. Yeah. Um, nice. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, too. Um, what did you? Oh, well, tying up the loose cannon idea. Um, no. The only way to handle a cocky loose cannon is to give them a crisis of competence. And I think you, you tied it up really nicely because 
ultimately it's up to him. You can't regain your confidence if you can't own your own choice and letting Viper put that responsibility back on onto his own shoulders is the only way you can authentically and organically kind of resolve that that scenario. And then of course they push him fine. He he comes back, but we don't know if he's back back. And so you have to put him through the same thing that shook his confidence in the first place, which is the jet wash. Um, and all these very simple, tidy ideas uh, are just beautifully used and and helps let the audience in on the lingo and um, the problems that fighter pilots come into because it, it's it's really, really good writing, actually. Um, yeah. it's, it's very impressive. But the thing I was going to ask you about just completely going back in time, like 10 minutes here, Jester, the first time we, we, we see them fighting in the air, Jester goes below the hard deck. Now that Jester breaks the rules, but Maverick is the one penalized for it, right? It's a very rules for thee, but not for me situation here. Do you have an opinion on that? Like, do you think there was an idea that Jester was trying to get at, or do you think he was just being a little bitch um, and trying not to get caught? Like, yeah, what, how do you read into that? That's a good question. I mean, I, I didn't ever look at it as Jester breaking a rule because he didn't engage. He just flew below the hard deck. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm. Who, the one who engaged was Maverick. Now, if Maverick would have flown below the hard deck and then Jester engaged, then he's the one who broke the rule. You can be below the hard deck, but you just can't engage. This is the oh. way I saw it. So, but I did see it as him being a little bitch because <laughs> he knew he was going to get caught. So he flew, and they even established that as a line, as an exposition line. Let's get down there before he goes below the hard deck. Cause like he, at first he goes vertical. I remember that moment. He's going vertical. So am I, I'm going vertical too. And they go vertical and then um, Maverick can't get to him. And so he, then he starts flying down and then Goose mentions, let's get down there before he gets below the hard deck. And then and then so that's not, total strategy on his part. Totally. He knew he was toast. So either he did it so he wouldn't get shot, which I don't necessarily think because I think that he has respect for Maverick mm -hmm. as a pilot. He thinks that Maverick is really fucking good. But I think he was testing him to see, will he break this rule, this rule of engagement? And he did. I think it was a test that he gave him and Maverick failed. Which and then he and he establishes they establish that a really great way at the end or after that when he goes in when he goes into the the locker room and he says that was the best flying I've seen yet right up to the oh no that was the when he got killed that was the one where he got killed anyway I just th I think that that he's got a lot of respect for Maverick and he was just testing him and he and Maverick failed nice nice yeah. analysis yeah I think the other couple things that jumped out I mean this is no brainer stuff here on cinematography right a lot of golden sunset coloring mostly mm. when you're on the the aircraft carrier the landing pads all that stuff it's very nostalgic i think even in 86 that had a very nostalgic feeling because of a lot of old photographs tend to yellow right the oxygen um hits like polaroids or the and just over time it begins to yellow and so what may have been crisp sharp blue colors become become this uh, sepia kind of coloring and so and even older photographs are just straight up sepia i don't know if they necessarily came out originally that way um but one way or another it's what they look like and so gold does create this kind of nostalgic whimsy early morning it's just golden hour is a beautiful time of day to shoot but i bet a fraction of these scenes were actually shot during golden hour 
instead they probably used a lot of orange filters especially when they're on the aircraft carrier because some of those shots i'm like that's no that's probably like 10 a.m or nowhere near uh sunrise uh but throw some orange filters on there or whatever color they may have been using um, some polarizers to kind of create a little more contrast and suddenly you have this gorgeous look as we're especially that opening sequence when we're just seeing credits roll and getting the vibe right they probably just sat around on this deck for a week straight shooting really cool shit <laughs> like, yeah hey let's let's just roll and we'll get them trying to avoid bashing their skulls against planes right and doing all this crazy acrobatic stuff on the ground i mean it's just gorgeous and it's just a really smart way to uh you know set your film and make it look gorgeous i personally like tony scott's style more than ridley scott even if ridley scott ultimately has the the more notable uh catalog tony scott i think if i could emulate one or the other i would probably personally lean towards tony scott and i'm i'm pretty surprised we haven't done more of his films i think this is only the second one um we did man on fire um in this and mm, uh yeah. at some point we'll do crimson tide i think just because it's denzel and tony scott <laughs> like, yeah man there's there's no and gene hackman there's no lo- I would, losing there i would really like to see the boards for this film like how oh, do you man. make boards you yeah. know like yeah. how do you really like how do you make the boards for this i mean you like you know, do you go, do you do that kind of style, the kind of run and gun, we're just going to get what we get and that we're going to build the story around what we get? Because there's a lot of shots where, you know, they just ex- exist. Like you said, you know, the guys on the deck ducking as the plane goes over them, you know, those kind of things. Do you storyboard out the dogfights? Do we know hmm. we need the plane to go this way? Now we need the plane to go this way. Um, is it based off the script? If, you know, or does the script evolve? with with what they capture like I, I how do you do this i don't know yeah i bet yeah that's a good question i bet they sat in a r- lot of rooms with pilots and trainers and just kind of maybe even i the way i would probably start is t-shirts like hey you're gonna be goose and maverick and we're gonna have y'all kind of sitting in desk or whatever and just kind of start staging like oh this is where this is going to look and um, then you can kind of move to a map right where you're you're symbolizing oh here's two jets on a map and he's going to break right and, and then maybe you can like take pictures of this and storyboard that way begin to just start to slowly build the stakes and how can we use some of these cool specific lingos um, jargon uh, terminology in order to in the most efficient way possible because you don't want to use jet wash 50 times um, instead you want to invoke it twice and that way the impact is that much greater and you want to hit the brakes twice establish how it works and then once you kind of understand all the jargon and maybe what you need to accomplish in certain scenes emotionally you can start to work in okay yeah i don't know that's kind of that would be a wild and really stressful like process i'm sure yeah Ugh. and filming filming it had to be really interesting too had to okay, be now you're gonna look to the left as, as a plane <laughs> passes you know like the the directing of that and oh my gosh uh, let me just tip my hat to the adr people because you know all of this stuff was was adr'd all the stuff in the planes and everything and and to the actors in in doing it you know it had to be yeah and i think that's one of the things that also dates this 
film is in the 80s up until somewhere in the 90s, the the microphone audio was at a certain quality. And so it's a little thinner, right? We don't have as yeah. much bassiness um, in, in 80s films as we do in probably somewhere around the early to mid 90s. Um, it seems like there was a massive jump in uh, technology that just captured the low end so much better and more crisply. Um, it's just hard to do from a distance because it's not like you can get the mic right up on their mouths in the middle of a scene, right? You yeah. have to record from three, four, sometimes 10 feet away um, and capturing bass from that distance is just impossible. And I'm sure lavalier technology just wasn't as good either. Uh, and so the, the thin audio certainly dates it, but I mean, yeah, the, I mean, but that's the point, but the, the idea of having the mask, right. Mm -hmm. They have the masks over their, over their mouths. So we don't even see, we can't see them talking. So we have, you know, we, that's a, that was a great move audio wise, you know, for, for ADR to have those masks on them almost all the time, you know, so we don't see if they're in sync or not. We don't, you know, whatever. And it's supposed to be thin because it's a radio. So mm -hmm. they get around that that way. But the but I feel the energy behind the the ADR performance, right? So you know when they're freaking out, like, oh, he's, he's we're going to ballistic man, go, you know, whatever. Like, I just imagine them being in a booth recording this and still having to have that energy of we're we're in a dogfight right now, you know. Well, I wonder if they were able to actually use a lot of that that audio. Oh, maybe. Great none point. of that i assume almost none of those cockpit shots were actually in the air of a fighter jet oh yeah right that's all studio stuff and so maybe it's like yeah it's a little degraded but we're just going to degrade it more and so why not yeah. just keep it yeah maybe they put a mic in the in the mask and they were yeah. doing it right then yeah, i mean maybe like even they're recording on on the other end maybe there's an, they're actually just using oh. the 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 built-in comms and then mm. they're capturing the other end of it. And that way you're really getting a true sense of the way the audio sounds in those jets. That would be brilliant. That would be, I mean, assuming yeah. you can get it to, to Tony's, you know, happy place. Yeah. Nice. The other thing I loved is as far as like camera work and I don't know the performance of the jets. Like I don't know how to call it. Uh, but I love how out of control at the beginning Cougar looks when he's trying to land, right? He is just wobble oh, city. And yeah. I feel tense watching it. I don't care if I know what's about to happen. I'm still like freaked out watching him getting close to the, uh, the, the aircraft carrier and he cannot get level. But I love that choice because there's no real risk. He's going to make it look as wild as possible before it just suddenly safely catches, right? There's absolutely zero risk to, to, the, to the viewing experience. Instead, you're just heightening things. You're getting a good buildup. Um, and now you can just cut to, you know, the, the cable catching at an insane speed. I mean, that's a really intense experience, it looks like, uh, to land on the aircraft carrier, even without the wobbling. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so just play it up. And my God, man, that's... I could never do it in the video game. No, same. Played, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Could never land. I would. I they kill. I would kill everything until the until I had to land, and I would never land. <laughs> I'd uh, always crash. I think I played that a, a couple years ago, actually. Did you really? Yeah, I have an emulator. It's still hard to land. It's still freaking impossible, man. It's okay. so good. <laughs> okay. My last note is really around the music. I thought the use of music is excellent, even if the music itself is not <laughs> always excellent. Yeah. Right. It's very, it's very eighties, but 
what it does is uh, it helps us stay emotionally tuned in uh, despite being thrown in and out of scenes constantly, right? This movie moves super quick, uh, but the music helps keeps us uh, uh, emotionally oriented. And so let's look at a couple of sequences, mostly around Maverick and Charlie. Actually, entirely around Maverick and Charlie. No. Uh, but first one, the first sequence is Mar- Maverick. Marverick, uh, Maverick goes and has dinner with Charlie. And at the end of that, right, this is a really great sequence. Because at the end, he leaves her turned on at her place. He's right at the door of what he's wanting. And he just bounces, uh, which is a baller move. Well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the music kicks in as he's walking out the door, right? Uh, I think it's the take my breath away instrumental and he rides away and the song bleeds into the next scene when they catch each other in the elevator. Right. And now he needs another shower. Um, ha ha, whatever. Uh, but the song emotionally connects those two scenes, even though they could, they're completely disconnected otherwise, but it creates a strong lover's vibe and helps build up and reinforce their connection, right? And so it sets the tone for the elevator scene instead of having to rebuild the chemistry and kind of reset. Because without that music, suddenly you're just back in the elevator and you might still have some residue from the last scene, but you're you're now emotionally thinking, oh, what are we doing now? Oh, oh, oh. And it becomes this discovery that you're, you're re- you're recreating this whole moment instead using that, uh, letting the music do the heavy lifting. You stay in this same headspace that he leaves her, her house with. And you stay in that as you watch him drive away and you stay in that as the elevator opens and we see Kelly McGillis just destroying his world. You know, she is just rocking it. Right. And now he's like, Oh, here we are. And he's shirtless. And we we're staying in the same headspace because of the music. And it's just a really strong way to continue to build instead of having to rebuild and leave us at another place of, Oh man, or is something going to happen now? Cause that would be a, a very unsatisfying experience to reset, rebuild, and then get doused again. Instead, we stay in that same space uh, that whole time before we finally move on to, to other things. Um, the next sequence that uh, they do a really great job with is the when Maverick and Charlie seal the deal. Like music carries them through a fight scene straight into a love scene. And so it's when it kind of starts right at the tail end of another uh, scene where Charlie shoots down Mav, right? They're in this post-hop debrief and a hop is what they call these aerial battles. Um, and they're in this post-hop debrief and she is just killing him, saying this was irresponsible, even if a victory in the end. And they go into the parking lot and she tries to talk to Mav, but he races off, revs his engine. I can't hear you, whatever. Um, and he just flies away and she chases him. Right. And then they fight some more. And then it segues into a confession of love and then a love scene. Like that's a really long built up sequence. But that whole sequence uses take my uh, the, the instrumental, I, I think, still using take my love away. It becomes their theme song, uh, even if their actual song is whatever that love and feeling yeah, thing is. So yeah. <laughs> uh, is that the righteous brothers? Uh, I don't know. That's a good, oh, good question. I don't know. Uh, I'm not good at 80s music. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> Me either. But the music keeps us tuned in to that undercurrent. It's a lover's tension instead of a bitter tension. And so we can more quickly trans- transition into something tender without the score soundtrack. It gets super herky jerky and would give us kind of whiplash. 
by constantly switching tones, right? You go from, oh, they were just in love a minute ago to now he's mad and he's revving the engine and now she's almost getting in car wrecks. Uh, it would feel very cartoony to move from romantic to tense to love within 90 seconds and having the music kind of emulate that or even stripping it away. It could, it could give you whiplash. And instead, keeping that music there keeps you in the headspace of this is love. Everything they're experiencing now uh, is a love vibe. Um, and you're just kind of waiting for it to resolve itself instead of waiting to see, are they going to punch each other <laughs> or are, are they going to kiss? I don't know. And the music is doing so much heavy lifting in, in the smartest way possible. And they use music to do the same thing in other sequences. After Goose dies, right, we, we stay in this guitar rift, you know, mood as he's dealing with that. And they connect his moment in the locker room with uh, Viper. They connect that with his hearing in front of the jury, the panel, um, the review panel. They connect it to him sitting in the, the bar, right? We're just sitting in the same headspace. And it connects all these scenes to tell one story about him dealing with the loss of Goose. Um, and they just do a really, really great job, even though this movie is moving lightning fast. When you think about all the story beats we're hitting, um, they use music to, to really help you stay connected through these little mini movies, these 10 minute sequences that are telling these stories of love, camaraderie, you know, loss, etc. cetera. Um, and you're set up at the that's a great point. And you're set up at the very beginning that way. In a way, it opens very like dramatic. Dung, you have these bells. Dong, boom, boom, you know, and it's really slow build. And then all of a sudden it is so abrupt. As soon as the, the jet takes off, it is straight into this, like, you know, like not rock, but I guess more aggressive, like, you know, now we're, we're getting into it, you know, we're setting you up, we're setting you up and now we're into it. And this is where the establishes, this is where the action is going to be. It's going to be in the air you know, in these jets. And so when we see it take off, it like, it also takes off. And it's a really weird cut <laughs> audio wise. It's right. really strange and kind of like not on, you know, but it's yeah. totally, it's fine. I rewinded it a couple of times. I was like, <laughs> what just happened there? How did they, how did they make that? Tra oh, they just didn't give a fuck. And they were like, all right, just cut it here. Okay, cool. There's a jet engine great. with flames coming out of it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like even audio wise, it was, it wasn't like on beat. It was, mm. You're, You're right. Like, yeah. Bitch bond. It was, I don't know. It was really, it's a, a strange cut, yeah. but it, whatever. It didn't matter. I, I got what they were doing <laughs> and it establishes they're going to use music to take you on this journey yeah. uh, in a lot of ways and, and which they very much did. Cause I can imagine if they expected this to be what it ended up being, they actually add probably 30 minutes onto the runtime um, in order to flush out a lot of these story beats and and I can imagine the sequel is probably going to run close to two and a half hours. Uh, yeah. I haven't looked at the runtime, but I, I'm sure they're not pressing an hour 49 like uh, or whatever this runtime is. Uh, it feels like a, an hour 40 minute uh, movie, which, you know, is very, very short for a blockbuster. Right. Yeah. Most blockbusters. Yeah. They, but if you can do a blockbuster for an hour and 40, your producers are extremely happy, not just because you save on budget but also because you can have more plays at the theater in a single day, um, which mean, translates into much more box office. If you can have 10 showings instead of, you know, six or seven, uh, that's, that's the money game right there. Yeah. It says it's two hours, 17 minutes. The new one, the new one. Well, looky there. Looky there. <laughs> 
as it goes. Yeah. yeah. And they just yeah. want to give you more bang for your buck or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I'm okay with that. Uh, hopefully we'll see. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So I enjoyed it, man. I, I think this is rightly up there in the annals of great movies and rightly so. Yeah, definitely. Ha- <laughs> you have to, Put on your 80s hat yeah. for oh, it. Yeah. You have to make some concessions so it doesn't 100% hold up. But I think that the stuff like the dog fighting this and, you know, the use of music is really is really amazing. And um, uh, even yeah. most of the wardrobe, I think, you know, still feels like not super dated because uniforms help to create a timeless look. And most of our time is spent with people in uniforms and Tom Cruise has a nice, short, timeless haircut. Yeah. I think it, there's a lot of ways that it still holds up. Even if, uh, in some ways, like you said, you definitely, you still have to really put on your eighties hat, but, uh, it doesn't feel quite as bad because of cinematography and, and et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole, it's also the whole, you know, it's Tom Cruise, which, you know, especially Tom Cruise in the eighties is it establishes, uh, you know, the girls want to be with him and guys want to be him yeah. kind of mentality, you know, which I think even in 2022, it's like Brad Pitt fight club. Like everybody, you know, references that and references Tom Cruise and top gun or like days of thunder, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, kind of thing where girls want to be him and guys want to be with him. And so, and they, they do a good job of, of like, like, you know, allowing that to be what it is, not trying to, to, to do anything different. I mean, from a writing standpoint, I agree with you. I think it's like, you know, really, really well done. And I'm really curious about the new one to see, you know, are they going to go too deep, you know, like, mm. um, or are they going to let it be its, its own thing or how, what, are, what are the reaches they're going to make, yeah. you know, to, to they, try to harken back. But I think they, they unintentionally set it up so well at the end of the movie he says, I want to, I want to be a, an instructor. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And then on top of that, we, we got to meet Goose's son and mm-hmm. the, and Goose dies, which is super relevant because this whole film is really about Maverick wrestling with the death of his own father. Yeah. And so you can continue that theme into the next film. Um, and that inherently creates a, a, a conflict um, within these characters. I'm assuming I haven't really watched a, a trailer, so I don't really know what's coming, but uh, which is a great way to watch it. But I assume they're going to circle back to to some of those ideas. It's all there if they want to use it. I think you haven't watched the trailer for the new one yet. No, I've seen a, a okay. piece of it. Just a, a I don't know. I saw Miles Teller with a mustache, and I was like, "That's got to be Goose's son." <laughs> like, <that> was... <laughs> You're a brilliant human being. Because the stash, the stash the gives stash. away. Why not? Why not just like. <laughs> put it on the nose that's right uh okay. but yeah that's that's as cool. far as i as, as much as i know okay. about what happens and i know uh jennifer Connolly, the other most timeless human being on the planet between between like, them two her right, together charlie Theron, and yeah, yeah like my god and tom cruise paul rudd like they there's a there's a community of vampires in hollywood um, <laughs> yes i they, totally agree they all sleep upside <laughs> down in like a cave somewhere <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you're wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So uh, what are you going to recommend this week? So I was, I was a little bit torn, but um, I, I saw uh, a, just a clip of this like show or whatever on Instagram. 
and I decided to just go start to watch it. And it's like weird and it's, and it's got Josh Brolin in it. It's weird. Uh, but it's, it's really amazing, uh, and well done. Um, it's, it's on Amazon video. So it's, which is strange, but, uh, it's called outer range and I've been watching it you know, for the you know, last few days, like, and I haven't done, finished the first season yet quite. There's more than one season? No, I I think this is the only oh, okay. season. I okay. just haven't finished this. It's the first season. I haven't finished it yet, but I've gotten, I think, eight episodes or seven episodes in or something. I don't know. Uh, but it, I just love Brolin. He's so good. Everything that guy does is unbelievably um, heavy mm. and intense and yeah. and just wonderful. All the acting in it is like really incredible. I thought I think the storyline is interesting and and uh, it's slow because it's a show, not a movie. So they develop stuff over time, almost annoyingly. You know, like shows are kind of annoying to me now because it's like you're gonna ask me for twelve hours of my life rather than two. You know, it's shit better be good. But it's been enjoyable, uh, and I find myself at the end of the day thinking I'm gonna watch an episode of this. So. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to recommend Outer Range. Nice. Uh, our friend Brianna actually sent me an email the other day saying I need to watch it. it she said it reminded her of my script. Um, oh. And so I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I did not see that coming. Nice. I'll check that out. Wow. I'm, I'm excited to to see what this is all about. I saw that yeah. clip you sent me, and I was like, ooh, this is intense. I like it. I, yeah, that clip. I saw it. and It's him basically like cursing God. And I was yeah. like, what is the premise of this? Like, you know? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So nice. interesting show. I am going to recommend a film called Petite Mammon. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't speak French. And so it, it all sounds like hillbilly. And that's, that's my <laughs> uh, problem I'm putting onto y'all. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, but it's by uh, equally French uh, director and writer, um, Celine Skiama. Dion. Celine Dion, uh, <laughs> Celine Shiama. Uh, it's S C I A M M A. I think she's brilliant. I've recommended another one of her films before, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, which I thought was phenomenal. And I just saw that she had a new movie out called Petite Mammon, uh, Maman. And I was like, I'm just gonna go watch it. I have no idea what this is about. And what a great way to experience this movie because there's a moment where I'm like, I wonder, you know, what would make this movie really interesting is if they did X Y Z. And then they did X, Y, Z. And I was just blown away. And it's short. It's an hour and 13 minutes. I love all these recent films that are being free to shorten their runtime and just say, hey, this is the best version of this story. Um, we don't need that extra 20 minutes. We're going to just get in and out. Um, until the And it's just this beautiful story. I, I don't even want to spoil any of it. If you can just hit play, this is a great, wonderful movie to hit play. I will say it's about a little girl and experiencing the loss of her grandmother and it takes her down some interesting paths uh and it's just incredible writing uh and it's i love movies that make me hate myself and and from the writing standpoint where i'm just like how did you come up with this genius simple idea that anyone could have made but you made it 10 times better than anyone else would have made it that's awesome <laughs> and it's just a genius little wrinkle, and I, I am just in awe of, of her writing and directing um, because it's it's very light-handed, and they she directs this little seven, eight-year-old little girl in the most magical way possible, 
uh yeah and so i highly recommend it it's a small simple film like go in understanding that you're probably going to spend time with like three people <laughs> uh and that's it and it's it's just a, a very simple little indie film art house film um and i just think it's pure magic uh yeah so petite maman uh i've now i think pronounced it seven different ways and so <laughs> hopefully you can figure it out from there <laughs> um yeah so stay tuned for next week we're going to see uh what maverick is up to you know 35 years later with top gun maverick aptly titled uh yeah and so if you're enjoying the show don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to uh, the podcast and leave us a note. If there's something you want us to cover, things you find interesting. Uh, if you're a pilot and you want to say, actually, buddy, this is the way it is in the air. Uh, you're writing you're writing checks your body can't cash, Wes, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> and then like grit your teeth in yeah, front of us. That's right. Um, Iceman. <laughs> I am <dead. laughs> Uh, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash Top Gun. And our quote of the day this week is from the Wright Brothers. If we worked on the assumption that what is accepted as true really is true, then there would be little hope for advance. I, I think that that is a great, great quote. Uh, I mean, you have to, people that change the world change it by taking what is thought to be true, you know, or, you know, the assumption that something can't be done and, and finding a way to do it. Those are the people that change the world. Those are the people that, that make a massive difference. Um, I, and I think that we can all do that in some small way, you know, even if it's not, you know, inventing the you know, fl human flight, right? But there's, there's definitely a way to, to take what, what some people might assume to be correct or incorrect and look at it in a different light. Uh, I just, I think that that's, that's brilliant. Agreed. I didn't realize I've used that quote before. Damn it, Wes. Oh, you do did? better. I yeah. don't remember it. How long ago was that? That was primer. That was like a hundred oh. episodes ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew we'd quoted the Wright brothers, but yeah. Damn it. Well, there's a reason I get drawn to that because there's, it's beautiful and it's, that's you okay. know, uh, it's approach and, and thoughtfulness about, you know, how we advance and how we take for granted certain assumptions. And you have to be willing to look dumb in order to, to see progress. If no one was ever willing to look stupid, we would never have progress um, because you're only then operating within accepted norms and accepted uh, assumed truths. And so I love that idea of just go for it, right? Try, risk, go, do. And, and assume that no one will understand or support you until you've actually done it uh, that's the other thing that is yes <laughs> that's the other thing is like you know and i i war with this myself of of you know wanting to get some kind of validation through the process to hopefully that you know that what i'm doing is resonating mm -hmm. but that's the wrong way to go about it it's like you know you got to do it first and then people will see you as the doer it, rather than hoping that you can get people to understand you and support you before that happens. Anyway, great quote, great quote. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. This was this is a lot of fun. I'm glad that you liked it as much as I did. Uh, I'm glad that I actually liked it still. Yeah, you know, I, I went into it a, a little bit nervous that you know this this like iconic film 
uh, timeless wouldn't be as timeless as I'd hope it would was, but in a lot of ways it was. Uh, make sure you join us next week. We're doing Top Gun Maverick. And until then, please share us with your friends, like us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and let us know if there's a film that you'd like this to, to review or to talk about. We would love to hear from you. Uh, until next week, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.